All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the next episode of the podcast. Here with your boy Heavy Days, coming at you from the Upside Down Library. And as always, we couldn't make the show happen without our incredible sponsors. Huge shout out to the one and only Seeds here now. You know them, you love them, all the hottest breeders, the freshest drops, everything you could want from low prices to high prices or anything in between, they got you covered. Check them out, Seeds here now, we appreciate them very much. Just like we appreciate our friends Simply Souvenirs over the pond in the UK. If you're based in Europe, check out Simply Souvenirs. They got everything you need from smoking accessory to genetics, outstanding customer service with a hand-selected range of products. Make sure you check them out, Simply Souvenirs. Shout out to the team at Purple Pro. If you're after a modular, handheld testing device capable of testing THC, CBD, water content, and water activity, get onto it now, guys. I've been using it for a few months. They were kind enough to send me one to test out, and I think they're great. If you want to get accurate, real-time results that don't cost you per test, grab yourself a Purple Pro, guys. They're fantastic. Thank you to the team, Purple Pro. Likewise, guys, to get the best harvest possible, use pulse sensors. You know them, you love them. They track all the parameters of your grow room to ensure that no hidden variables are holding your crop back. Check them out, guys. Pulse sensors. I use them in my garden. You should get them too. It's no brainer. On this episode, we're joined by our good buddy, Direwolf. This is a special one, reflecting specifically on the Canadian scene and its history, a few notable clones, some of the lore and famous figures, so much more. I think you'll enjoy this one, gang. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Alrighty, gang, we're back at it. Thanks for joining us on this episode. We're joined by our good friend, Direwolf, to talk all things Canadian history, genetics, trends, the future, so much more. Very excited to have him on the show. Thank you for joining us again, Direwolf. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. First question I want to know, what have you been smoking on today? Or have you even been smoking today? What are you smoking on yesterday? (laughs) I, I have not been smoking today. I've been working all day, but I've, I'm actually traveling at the moment all week. So I do have a, I'm trying to think what I've got in my travel jar. I think I have Ghost of Leroy from Rare Dankness, which is kind of like a Ghost OG triangle cross. Um, some Purple Kush, which is like a Canadian classic. And... I've got some GMO, and I actually just got a couple of days ago from visiting some big commercial living soil friends of mine that gave me some of the, they've always got the newest stuff. I think they gave me gas truffles and greasy runs and something else I can't remember. Got a good selection. That does sound really nice. I want to jump into a few of those and hear your thoughts, but just out of curiosity, you mentioned quite a nice range of genetics, you know, from the old school purple kush through to the newest, you know, greasy runs. What stands out the most to you out of the four or five you just sort of mentioned? Uh, probably the, oh, honestly, that one to me, uh, I've kind of a lovely relationship with it because it's so nasty. Sometimes you, you crave it and sometimes you cringe when you open the jar, but I still think that's a, uh, 
um, strain all the way around. Oops, sorry, I think I, I lost you for a second there. What was the name of that one? We heard everything, just not the name of it. <laughs> oh, G, uh, GMO. I was saying the rankness of GMO. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Beautiful, beautiful. And out of curiosity, have you ever had many strains from rare dankness? Because I've actually grown out Ghost of Leroy myself and I thought it was a pretty good strain, but I feel like um, you don't hear a lot about rare dankness. Have you ever had much experience with their genetics or not particularly? Not particularly. I actually, that's, I only ever bought one pack from him quite a long time ago, but it was a standout pack where that was, I would consider it one of the best packs I've ever bought in my life. It was just like whatever, 10 or 12 pack. And there was two like super, super nice OGs that came out of it. And that one is actually, I think that's the longest I've, of any of the clones that I've held personally that I popped. That's, that's the one I was super impressed with it. Oh, wow. That was the ghost of Leroy, was it? Yeah, it was a ghost of Leroy. The reason why I picked that one myself as well is because it's so heavy on the OG, isn't it? It's like TK into ghost into TK. It's a, it's a cool one for if you're looking for OG and seed form. Yeah, I actually just picked it randomly. I was just at a trade show for something else, and uh, I just randomly got it, and uh, I just wanted to gra- try an OG pack, and uh, you know, it turned out super nice. It's a funny strain because I that clone, when I first ran it, is still the tastiest clone I've ever grown personally. And that was probably like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And I've been chasing that flavor ever since and never got it to to uh, pop the Terps like that one or two times. It's still super nice, but I know it has the potential. But uh, I guess I don't have the skills to bring it out. I'm so glad you said that because I've had a similar experience where I'm like chasing that first cycle with like a different plant. And um, it's good to hear I'm not alone because I sort of, I'm like, no, I was definitely a worse grower back then. How did I make it pop so hard? Like, <laughs> It's an interesting one. But I guess while we're on the topic of uh, maybe not being quite as good grower and um, making things shine well, I'd love to talk some of the early days of uh, the BC growing life with you. And I guess the the point I'd like to start it off with is I'd love to hear your experience because we have, we have lots of chats in the, in the DMs and... I, I value, um, how should I say, I feel like your perspectives are very honest and um, unbiased. And so I want to start off by asking, you hear a lot of people talking about the olden days of cannabis and like how it was so much better, certain strains were just insane, you don't see that anymore. Do you think it really was like that or do you think we have a bit of rose shade glasses and, you know, like good quality wasn't around as much, all that sort of stuff? I think 100% it's a million times better today. I think it was a lot more varied back then. Um, like these days, it's I do find it's like super limited. Um, like everything's kind of an OG or cookies. or it, And back then, you really, there's definitely some stuff when I look back and I'm like, oh, that was way different and there's nothing around like it now. I also don't lose sight of the fact that most of it was garbage. Um, there was a, both the stuff that people were growing. I mean, you could, like I kind of got started back in the, I've been around like since the late 80s, but I started, kind of in the growing scene in the early nineties. And I mean, back then nobody even tried, hardly anyone even saved good stuff. They just popped a pack and whatever was the biggest yielder, that was your keeper. And cause you could sell anything. Um, so, but I did see some, there was definitely some nice stuff, but it was, uh, I would say there was a whole lot of mids around. Um, the only ones that really, there's a couple that stand out from back then, but honestly, like if I had to go back in time, I, I can honestly think of like there was an old NL clone that we used to have that I would love to get back. I've never seen anything like that since. And there's some other good stuff, but they're mostly still 
similar stuff today. There's like, you know, some of the hazes were nice. We, I can still get similar stuff today. Some of the Northern light stuff was nice, but to me, I just kind of think like Bubba and stuff like that are basically just modern day Northern lights of the type that I liked. But there was a lot of, there was a lot of garbage back there. Honestly, man, it was, people remember the good stuff, but it was pretty dismal. <laughs> okay. Well, good to hear that I haven't missed the golden age of cannabis in a sense. I'd be curious to hear, you mentioned Northern Lights, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you was back in like the 90s, say, in uh, the Pacific Northwest of the USA, when Northern Lights and those sort of colors were really starting to take off, did they just come up and cross the border around that time, or did was there a bit of a delay before they made their way up to you, so to speak? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm guessing they probably did, but I think most of it was, I mean, if you, I don't know, I'm not don't remember the exact dates but it was around like what when i kind of got into the growing scene it was like night probably around 91 like i was around it but i really it was like 91 or so and it was when i just remember when i started most of the stuff was second hand from seed bank so it was like neville stuff was from what i can tell it was like a lot of people ordered stuff in around 88 or so that time for late 80s and then they got shut down by the dea and you couldn't get seeds anywhere so what all you got was basically whatever f2s or clones getting passed around from people that had bought from the seed bank i think there was probably some stuff around bc and that that had come up from seattle but who knows i think the reality if you look back in canadian history a huge portion of it was old seed bank um genetics and also you got to remember where i I kind of been back and forth and i'm originally from like the toronto area of canada which is it's kind of always our kind of crew was kind of half based in BC and half based in Ontario. And I've always bumped back and forth between those two places, but I was mostly in Ontario around Toronto area. And it was super like they are two different regions of Canada and where I lived, it was super hardcore for like policing and stuff for cannabis. So people were, were pretty tight. Like there wasn't a whole lot of sharing of anything like that. It was like whatever was in your own crew. And then BC was a complete opposite. Like nobody had been put in jail in like a decade or something for, for growing it was a bit of a free-for-all but even i got the feeling like in bc i don't think there was a ton of sharing outside of like pretty tight networks like you, even there like you kept your your head down pretty good or it was gonna get lopped off yeah look certainly it makes sense um i'd be interested to to ask like at what point do you think that the laws really started to relax on the east coast or do you think they still haven't really caught up with the west coast uh, there is pretty relaxed now, but it's been pretty recent. Like it was pretty crazy. Like I remember even after legalization, which I'm not sh- like full legalization, which I'm not sure. I don't even remember exactly when that was probably about seven or eight years ago. I live in a area that's like a bit, the big greenhouse area. And there were some massive like legal cannabis places. And I own, own like a big property and the property was still getting flown by the police looking for people growing plants in the backyard while there was like 20 acres of legal weed, like, a kilometer away so it was those hobbits died died hard with the uh, ontario police force these days it's a free-for-all but back but it, it took it took a long time and it used to literally be like like when, most of the time that i was growing if you got caught with a single plant you were going to jail period wow that that sounds really brutal yeah i know it was a, it was a war zone man it's interesting because you hear about how the USA historically had really harsh penalties, but I guess it's interesting to hear that they weren't really too much different just over the border. 
I'd love to ask you, if we roll back a little bit, what was, I've always been interested, what did gorilla growing look like in Canada back in like, you know, the 80s and 90s when people were just starting to really grow flour? Because I guess you hear about gorilla growing in the States and stuff, but in Canada, the the conditions are just harsher, I imagine, for a, a good chunk of the year. How did that work? Was it really limited or like what was the limiting factor in your gorilla grow, just the stealth or the environment? So most of Canada, um, basically like where I, most of Canada, it's really situated along the U.S. border, the population, but there's a giant vast wilderness area, like pretty much wherever you live, only a couple hours north. So it was basically impossible to grow along the southern areas because it was, you just get either busted or somebody would rip it off. So everyone kind of grew up in like the wilderness areas. And there you were really limited, especially back then. The main thing you remember about cannabis or cannabis in Canada in that period is genetics were really locked down. Like you couldn't get any. So like when I, just for reference, when I started growing, you could not, it was illegal to buy anything telling you how to grow cannabis. It was illegal to buy seeds anywhere. Like there's basically no place in the world other than you literally had to fly to Amsterdam to get seeds um, and smuggle them back. And so basically what you got is the people that were in the game. You just, I mean, that's how our crew kind of got started is we were the, had good genetics and you just kept it on lockdown and nobody, nobody else could get in, but especially the case with outdoor genetics, because uh, basically nothing finished out here. Um, you had to be out in, in a lot of areas, but kind of third week of September was kind of the magic number and basically nothing finished. And there was a couple of really crappy Dutch strains. So it was really, uh, it was all about, that's kind of how I got into the genetics end of things was if you were in the game, you had to like basically breed your own genetics because you couldn't get it from anywhere else. So that was a limiting factor and kind of, you know, our crew kind of got into some of the earlier stuff, was, which was mostly of Canada. The early stuff was based around a strain called Mighty Might. And that was kind of like, a, depending on the pheno, it was kind of an auto to semi-auto one that would finish anywhere and you could also get it in before like it used to be back in the old days like a drought so in the end of the summer there would uh, through the summer there'd be no weed and you could if you had weed you could sell it for really high prices uh, um, really really easily so these strains kind of um allowed you to hit that you know get it in and also get it in before uh um, when all the mainstream stuff started coming in then the prices dropped you could get in early so it was definitely genetics and willingness to do like hardcore stuff to pull it off like some of the i've seen some crazy stuff to where we used to grow one of the places we literally used to like drive a couple of hours then canoe about two hours into the wilderness and we had like a grow out we did grows out in the swamps um so you could kind of water them i'd say swamp growing is one of the big canadian uh, Canadian things because we've got plenty of swamps and no one in their right mind is going to go in a Canadian swamp in the summer because the bugs were just, you know, fierce. Oh, that's cool. That's like a, a nice little bit of uh, what would you say? Like human IPM. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was different. I mean, they said it was, that's like a real Canadian. I think the Canadian gorilla was quite a bit different than the US stuff because it was I don't know. It just seemed a lot different because, uh, A, you were growing really small plants because in order for something to finish by September 3rd, you weren't growing like, you know, two pounders. They were more like quarter pound was a good plant. And it's mostly rock. So you can't dig anywhere. Um, so you couldn't dig. That was one of the big problems is there's, you couldn't dig a hole. You had to basically, 
either float something on top of a swamp or um, they did a lot of like whatever you put bushel baskets on top of a swamp so it's self water or there's a bunch of different methods but it was always interesting back then you stumble I stumbled across quite a few you know wilderness gorilla grows and that's that was kind of before the internet so that's how you learned you're like how people different people would do is by stumbling on there was a lot of patches back then and stumble onto somebody else and go oh man I never thought of you know dropping bushel baskets on my four-wheeler and dropping it in a on top of a wet part of a swamp it's like raised beds or there was other ones on the I've seen on the east coast of Canada where we have these like kind of I don't know what the official name is but it's like a floating so you could actually it's almost like standing on a waterbed so it's kind of like a surface layer of soil and moss and it's just floating over top of a pond and uh they would grow on top of that and it would just the roots would just grow right down into the swamp like the water roots there's a bunch of crazy uh, methods and probably a bunch of stuff i've never heard of before because everyone kept it tight that's cool i would uh i'd be interested to hear the uh the terroir and the flavor of the swamp weed literally sounds fun but um I'd love to ask you, we had uh, White Buffalo on the show recently and they referenced an early Canadian strain. I'll be honest, I, I wasn't, I'm, I've heard of it, but I'm not as familiar with it as I should be. But I'd love to hear if you have any experience with it. The old Spice of Life Cream Sodica. Did you have much interaction with that one at all? Yeah, I actually grew it. I was, that was in my opinion, one of, I think it kind of became an important building block. But honestly, like just to clarify, in my opinion, most of the Canadian outdoor weed is, has never been that great with the genetics being able to finish. Like in, in some parts of Canada, you can grow some like kind of more indoor, like regular strains. But most parts of Canada, when you're limited to that. So like, for instance, like if you grow like, I don't know, like a Bubba or something like that, I personally there's like a lot of decent weed. I, I haven't smoked a whole lot of like really good Canadian outdoor short season weed. Um, and I would say no offense to uh breeder Steve, but cream soda would fall into that, that realm. I think that probably, so that was like a early, like it's a purple one. And that was kind of some of the earlier stuff we were working with, which was like, um, I used to work with one, um, outdoor genetics. Um, we saw this purple stuff that came out of Holland and it was, pretty horrible it looked really good but it didn't taste that good um and it didn't get you that high and i'm thinking the purple the cream sodica was one of them to put it in perspective breeder steve when he released it he immediately pulled it off the market and kind of regretted it because even though it was a i think a good like production strain it was definitely like lacking in some of those other areas Wow, that's interesting perspective. That's that's cool to hear. And I mean, while we're on the topic of purple cannabis, you mentioned the purple Kush earlier, and you said it was a Canadian favorite. You got my brain juices sort of pumping around. I I had remembered that it was a popular one in Canada, um, but I was interested to know. Do you know which cutting of the purple Kush that is? Because I know there's a few, and I think the popular one is like the the SR, whatever. Is it that one or a different one? As far as you know. Uh, I've got a couple that particular that's like a seed line that that I run and it's actually uh, based off of a Garberville one um, which is just the Garberville purple kush which is one that came which is, isn't so it's a California one not a Canadian one but it's been around Canada for probably like I don't know when I first saw it early 2000s or so supposedly got smuggled up in the 
door of somebody's car that was fleeing California on charges. But um, there's a couple. So Purple Kush is kind of a weird Canadian thing. First of all, a lot of the Purple Kush we have up here isn't actually purple. Um, but it was kind of a, I'm trying to think, it was early. Canada's weird, especially BC, where for on the commercial scene, it was really like, it would be like all one clone. So it'd be like for like a few years, I think White Buffalo kind of got, there's like these eras and it was like in the early 2000s, it was like purple kush and everybody was growing purple kush. And there was a few different types, but it was mostly one clone. And then there was another era, it was like the hash plant era. And I think if you go back earlier, it was the, there was a Northern Lights thing and a big bud and purple kush was a long, pretty long standing era in the early 2000s and they talked to one guy who i'm pretty sure is the kind of source for it. and it was actually a california uh, broker that smuggled up the clone and i think it was kind of during that og kush era um and it was actually a, a kush we call it purple kush but when i've grown out s1s of it and stuff it pops out og phenos i think it was basically the first og kush it doesn't look like an og kush but it, when you taste it you're like that's got that kush funk to it and when you pop seed lines out of it, not the Garberville, that's a separate one. Um, but the main one that everyone, I just call it the BC Purple Kush. That's the main one that everyone was growing. And that one I'm pretty convinced was an OG. And uh, I've talked to the, actually talked to the broker um, that supposedly brought it up. And I'm pretty sure it probably came from him. And he told me it was a uh, Hollywood Purple Kush cross with Bubba, which I've never even heard of a Hollywood purple kush. I kind of wonder, wonder if it's the Hollywood pure kush. But anyway, he was a big broker and it was back in the first early days of that thing in California. And a lot of the BC um, growers, that they were, it was an export market, right? So brought up this cut and gave it to a bunch of you know organized crime gangs um, to grow for him. And this whole story totally, I was like, everything like matched. So I would lay bets. That's probably what it is. And it matches what the S1s and crosses that have grown out come from it. It's nothing special. It's a nice clone. But the other thing I always find funny about the Canadian purple kush is a lot of them didn't really go super purple. They'd kind of have like a little bit of purple in the calyxes. Or if you really drop the temperature, it would be like lavender. But, but it, it sounded a lot like the Urkel story from California. Mm. Yeah, wow. There's so many interesting talking points you dropped there. And I mean, I've certainly heard of the Garberville Purple. I mean, uh, Mean Gene, well-known breeder, he uses that in his work as well. So definitely some uh, established uh, provenance behind that one. And you know what? I'm, I'm so stoked that you referenced that a lot of the Purple Kush doesn't go purple because one of, not the very first, because I've told this story on other podcasts, like the first good weed I ever had that really got my mind ticking about weed was some green granddaddy purple. Like the second or third strain I got to try that was really good was some green purple kush. And I always looked back on it and was like, fuck, that was good. Like, but it, I don't know if it was actually purple kush. And then I just realized it actually, like my mate did tell me he got it from like an online Canadian weed seller or whatever back in the day. So like it could well be similar because it, it was definitely nice stuff, but that's cool. You've pulled a lot of those sort of stories together for me. I would love to sort of move to a topic that's hard to get a lot of info about. You mentioned it yourself that the hash plant era, it seems like Pink Kush has been popular for quite a while. And from what White Buffalo told us, 
those hash plants and pink cushions are sort of from the same era. What's your perspective and recollection on the hash plant era, so to speak? Um, so the hash plant era kind of start like right from this. I remember back when I was, I was in like university in like the 90, early 90s. And I can remember some of those cuts, like champagne was one of them that came out of that same group of people. They were like biker cuts, I think is the, all the, all the stories point back towards a group of bikers and champagne was probably the most elite cut back then. Um, like we'd never seen anything like it at the time. So it was going around back then, but it really kind of blew up where we had, I think it was the early medical days and there was, you could get, I can't remember if it was like there was mandatory minimums around 10 plants or if it was, you could get a medical card for 10 plants. But for a while, it was like these crazy scenes where they would like drop down these vertical, they're called biker buckets. So it'd be like, uh, like a hempy bucket or whatever they call it, like a big five gallon pail and some hydro corn and a super high powered bubbler in the bottom and with like coolers and stuff. And it was like really high tech. And then they would drop these, vertical thousand watt bulbs and they'd have one bulb per plant and grow these massive massive beasts like there'd be commercial grows that had 10 plants in them in order to yield in them there was only a couple of strains that could actually do it and and one was uh it was a hash plant and the other one was like a bc big bud i don't i think the hash plant was decent quality the bc big bud was horrid um but that was their claim to fame if you wanted to grow the 10 plants you had to grow like one of these handful of clones anything else you'd get like you know, three quarters of a pound of light or something like that. Yeah, wow. So, champagne's an interesting one from a few perspectives. I guess I feel like you don't hear about it as much as, say, the king, but I have certainly heard about it a lot. Uh, how would you describe it? Is it like a, like a kush sort of plant? I never tried it a couple of times. It was going back quite a ways. It was just, I consider most of those more of like, I kind of differentiate hash plants and cushions i find like cushions are kind of more the more modern like og type i mean that's not traditional obviously cushions or could be anything but i consider those ones more like of a pure hash plant so they didn't have they just tasted like hash it wasn't like that new it wasn't like og i'm a big hash plant guy right i like the effects and i had kind of up until og kush and purple cushion stuff kind of committed i mean that's my preference for effect and I'm stuck smoking stuff that doesn't taste that great because it was just not bad. It just tasted like hash. And that's what champagne was kind of like. It looked good in a bag. It yielded good. But I would consider it just like a, a pretty generic, high, high quality, but generic hash plant. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And did you ever grow any of these cuts yourself in the early days or were they so tightly held that like you just sort of got buds of them here and there? No, definitely not in the early days. That's kind of a, um, I've grown, mo- I'd say most of what's going around up until like the last decade, I got, I got whatever cuts were going through my kind of extended crew, which was pretty like, said it was a tight scene. Like these, I was like rolling with since like the, since my university days, like since the nineties and some of those guys were pretty connected and I'd get whatever they happened to be, which is usually some of the good commercial cuts, but most of the stuff was locked down pretty hard. And even if it wasn't up until pretty recently, but I did grow a lot of uh, like stuff like the grapefruit was a real famous clone back there. And I could have actually could have gotten a few times, but I've grown out a crap load of grapefruit crosses 
Um, so I have a good feeling of what, okay, what grapefruit is like just from growing out, you know, 50 or 60 seeds of it. Um, and that's the same thing with the hash plants. I definitely, I had a bunch of them in like the actual cologne and from dispensaries and stuff, but I've never, uh, never grown any of, any of those coveted ones. I've never really, uh, um, grown myself. Yeah. Not a problem. That sounds like you still have a, a really diverse range of experience, which is great to hear. Out of curiosity, did you ever try any of that fabled Breeder Steve, DJ Short collab stuff? Or was that more of like a seed release they did and it wasn't necessarily like stuff passed out to locals? Uh, I think that was pretty tight. I actually have tried some of the stuff. This is the funny thing about Canada is there's, I don't know whether it's actually true, but people are always between you know, Ontario and BC, especially most people live in kind of three main parts of Canada. And I don't know whether that's actually true with can in Canada, but definitely within the weed scene, you were never more than about three people removed. So I kind of had, uh, I actually had like two groups, separate groups of friends. They were all like one person removed from that breeder, Steve crew. And actually one of my friends was actually involved in that grow. So I actually tried the, it was something crush. I can't remember. I think it was blue crush or something came out of that one. Um, I can't remember the actual name, but it was Crush for sure. Um, I did try that. It's good. I'm not a giant uh, blueberry DJ Short fan. I respect him. It's, it's not my taste of weed. Um, so I did try some of that, and I actually grew some of the seeds, um, and they were they were decent. Nice, nice. And actually, sorry, I did. I, now that I think back, I grew a bunch of. I think I grew a bunch of Time Warp crossed with that blue, uh, true blue the blueberry mail they used in that that actually came from red at legend seeds i grew that outdoor for a few years too so i definitely tried a few of them. yeah wow interesting and you just mentioned legend seeds i think a lot of people are probably unaware that dj did that collab with them and a few cool lesser known strains came out of it like you know red eye bride and a, a few other ones what was it toe jam and stuff did you ever have much of a positive impression from those ones and how come you think they don't get uh recognized as much I, the thing you gotta remember about that time and frame in Canada, the export market was all about it had to look a certain way, almost no hairs, really dumb criteria. If you think back, it was like it had to be super light green, like that was the, the main the, that exactly. Um, so a lot of that was to me that was like commercial weed. It was decent. Um, it was de definitely good weed. I I didn't really I grew a bunch of it, and it wasn't something that I would keep around personally. But it was definitely good. Yeah, nice. Good perspective. So I know that you've done um, some different cultivation writing over the years for Cannabis Canada and Cannabis Culture. What was that experience like? And would you ever consider doing more of that sort of creative writing? Um, I think that was a moment in time. Yeah. So basically, kind of my, my history is I always worked in the, uh, since I was a little kid, I worked in like the commercial greenhouse industry. And I, Oh, it's kind of, a, I went to kind of the top ag, top ag or horticulture school in Canada. And it was kind of, at that time I was doing like a lot of dead shows and I was, um, so I was hanging around with like kind of dead head crowd in that university. And one of my roommates was a big wholesaler. And I think just the, that was like the, whatever, Holy Trinity or whatever you call it of things where that my friend, the wholesaler kind of knew everybody in town. So our house was kind of like a, I don't know what you'd call it. Like anything good weed wise was coming. It was coming through town 
was through our house. Like, so all the growers would come there and you just kind of knew everybody. It was all through like the dead scene largely. And, and just because I had had all all that commercial greenhouse experience, I kind of always got sucked in with a lot of those guys because I kind of, you know, came from commercial uh, greenhouse flowers and veg and out of there, somehow I ended up working on the side for uh, cannabis Canada, which was all of the time. It was the same magazine, cannabis, cannabis Canada, it turned into cannabis culture eventually. And it was really like an activist magazine. So that was back in like the dark days. You weren't allowed to really do anything there and love him or hate him. Mark Emery was the guy that owned that magazine. And he did, I don't particularly like the guy, but uh, he, there's no question. He did a lot of major good for Canada's cannabis laws and some, and some other stuff. So he was really pushing the boundaries and that was his magazine. And that's where if you hear people talking about Emery seeds and that it was all sold out of the magazine, but it was very much like a, uh, it was an activist magazine. Um, and it was really about, you got to remember that, that if you frame that, I don't think a lot of people realize, but at that point in time, BC specifically was kind with BC and Amsterdam were the two epicenters of cannabis in the, in the world. California was still really, this is kind of like late nineties. Um, California was still locked down pretty hard. So everyone was not, it wasn't, even though it was a major player, nobody was talking of it in the international scene. So it was, BC was kind of eccentric and Mark Henry's kind of a big egomaniac. So he'd kind of use that to promote his stuff, but I'm super proud of being involved in that. I think it really pushed the boundaries and, uh, so basically kind of my niche there was, I kind of just took what I was learning from working in going to school and being in the commercial industry, mostly from being in the commercial greenhouse industry and putting it into cannabis and just taking like, I kind of, brought like diff was a new thing back there so i kind of you know write an article on diff and uh a bunch of stuff like that but basically taking just general horticulture things that was kind of the forefront of the you know floriculture vegetable industry and bringing it into the cannabis world and then at the same time mark Emery had this giant seed catalog which was at the time the only place in the world that you could buy cannabis seeds from without flying to amsterdam so it was like this real hot um commodity i mean I, who knows how much money he made off of that definitely a lot but uh yeah that magazine i mean high times was always the biggest and then we were the next biggest I remember, what up to like quite a few million maybe i'm wrong i don't remember the circulation but it was a substantial circulation all through the world um and that was kind of but as i said i think it was a moment of time where a lot of that stuff it was kind of before the internet was big internet was around but a lot of that stuff just got replaced but it was good information at the time that I was putting out, but it really quickly got replaced by like overgrow and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it was a crazy, it was a crazy time. Like we had kind of reached a crescendo, I think it was 2003 or 2004 that this kind of gives you an idea of like who these <laughs> sort of running this for that they were just total activists. And Dana Larson's the guy that I really have a huge amount of respect for that nobody talks about, but to me, he's the biggest activist in Canada ever. And he was kind of, you know, kept his head down a little bit, but it kind of reached this uh, crescendo when at the time the DEA had just opened up an office in Canada because they were concerned with all the exporting going on and stuff like that. So they'd opened up a, a office in Vancouver, which is where cannabis culture at the time was called, was based. And, Mark Emery and Dana, and I can't remember a couple other people from the magazine. Um, the drug czar had actually come up to Vancouver and was going to give like a drug czar 
whatever speech or something like, like a private function. And these guys actually bought a table at it without people realizing there was a bunch of activists in the front row and heckled the drug czar through the whole thing. That was the time when I definitely regretted being part of that organization because <laughs> I didn't sign up for heckling the drug czar. And uh, so the drug czar was at the time, I don't think knew who any of them were, even though Mark Emery was shipping seeds all over the U.S. like crazy. And he, from what I can piece together, went home and said, who the heck are these people that heckled me through the whole thing? And they're like, oh, that's, you know, Mark Emery and Dana Larson, the biggest seed sellers in the world, and they sell over America. And they started a big DEA, you know, investigation of the whole magazine organization that ended up in uh, Mark Emery going to jail and a bunch of uh, crazy stuff that went around. I don't think anyone knows exactly what happened, but it was definitely a little heart raising. I had a I had a situation at that time, which I'm, I'm sure is not, I'm still not positive it's what's happened, but I'm pretty sure it's what happened. So at the time, like I said, I was based in uh, Ontario. So all the articles I was writing were coming from, uh, were just being transmitted digitally. And at the time we didn't, I just knew they'd done this thing with the drugs are. And I was like, like, I don't like the sounds of that, but nothing, everything was kind of going smoothly. And we've been operating for quite a few years with no hassles. And all of a sudden all this wonky stuff started coming. Like I was going back and forth between Dana was the editor at the time and I was sending him articles and he kept coming back and going, I didn't get the article. And I was like, what the heck? There's this bunch of wonky stuff where we couldn't transmit emails, which looking back was clearly, we know that the DEA was on the servers, like looking through stuff. I'm sure it was something to do with that. And uh, I used to send them all through uh, like from an internet, whatever you call them, cafe. Um, so it couldn't get traced to me. And I was usually, I was pretty paranoid back then. So I always move around a little bit, but I guess, I don't know, I get complacent and I kept every Friday afternoon or not every, but I, that it was like a specific time, kind of, you know, whatever, four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, I'd stop by the same internet cafe and transmit the article or whatever we were communicating about. And then, so one day I'm sitting there and I was the only person in the cafe and all of a sudden, bang, the door comes open and this cop looking guy comes in and he walks right past, you know, about 50 computer terminals and goes right to me and like looks over. And I was like, like that seems a little <laughs> sketch. And he left and I was like, okay, well, whatever. I was probably being paranoid. And uh, two minutes later, bang, and he comes again with another guy that looks like a cop and they come straight for my like where I'm sitting, there's nobody else there. So I kind of got up and I'm super paranoid back there. So I was, I was uh, parked about three parking lots away in kind of a busy area. And so I just, I first started walking and I was like, holy cow, like they're actually like coming after me. So it ended up with me running through this parking lot, you know, dodging cars like it was in a movie with these two, you know, undercover cop looking people chasing me. And I, I got away and just thought, it's kind of like, I don't know, it sure felt like that was like the DEA or something, but it seemed so crazy like to be staking at an internet cafe. Um, and then like two weeks later, they arrested, they took down Mark Emery and arrested him and extradited him and a bunch of other people. So I think it probably was. We'll never know for sure, but I, it was uh, something I'm totally proud of. I think it was instrumental in changing, Can I think Canada and the US laws. I, I was always a big believer in genetics of just, that was always the limiting factor of there wasn't enough genetics and or at the time know-how of how to grow stuff. So I really believed in just spreading genetics, spreading the know-how of how to do stuff. And I really think that just in the U S that's under, I don't think they realize how much 
that probably made a difference because you couldn't get seeds other than from that organization. It really, for I don't remember how many years, it's probably like six or seven years, it really just flooded the world with high quality um, cannabis genetics. So I'm super proud of uh, super proud of that. Not super proud of really being associated with Mark Emery, but whatever, he did some good things. You mentioned that like uh, for a good chunk of time, say five, six years, as you said, um, you know, Mark was really the one flooding the world with genetics. I guess I'd be interested to hear, do you feel like a lot of what he stocked was good quality and was what it says it was? Because I always remember back to that Breeder Steve story where he rocks up with the sweet skunk and Mark was like, whatever, we'll just call it Sensi Big Bud or like his sweet skunk or like whatever it was. And I was just like, oh, okay. Like maybe it was a bit more like, you know, just whack a name on whatever or like what was your take? Do you think it was pretty above board or it was a bit like just whatever works? Uh, I think it was a bit of both. I think it was mostly uh, like, so how that started from what I remember is Mark, he was originally, everything was just coming out of Amsterdam and he had a guy, um, I won't say his name, but there was a guy that was working over that there was living over there that was kind of uh um i don't know what exactly he was doing there but he was shipping he was just buying seeds and and moving them to mark and then he was just reselling you know like at the time it was like sagamartha and sensi and uh dutch pat all the original kind of dutch ones and then that guy was actually one of the guys that came back i believe and started the bc seed company and there was a bunch of stuff like that, but there was a whole lot of knockoffs. So that was basically Mark started off selling, you know, Dutch genetics. And then he, I think just figured, Oh crap, you can um, just knock off this stuff and then sell. Nobody really cared. Most people didn't really know enough to care. They just were like, Oh, it's Northern lights. But um, yeah, I think a whole lot of it was just like F2s from a 10 pack, but there was definitely some good work. Like reader Steve definitely did some real work, but I mean, to put it in context, I was not to, <laughs> At the at the time, I remember like this is way back in the early days when Steve first getting started. I remember we kind of used to laugh at home because it had in the in the write up. It was like you know his breeding operation under two four hundred watt lights. Like it literally said it in the in the breeding in the company description. Like so that's how stuff started. And he definitely not just breeder Steve. I think the guy did some major, some massive work. But that was kind of the context. Is like how big were these places? And also keep in mind. Like the average size for grows back then was tiny compared to what we're used to. Like where I was from, like a four lighter was pretty much as much as most people ran. Ten, li- ten lights was definitely, unless you were like organized crime, a ten lighter was a big deal. And then if you were out in BC, ten lighters were a little bit more common. And there was definitely like some 30 or 40 and some big ones. But I would say the average grow at that time in Canada was four lights. So, you know, how much <laughs> breeding was actually you know, how much real breeding was actually going on. Um, I think there was definitely some interesting stuff came out of there, but there was also a ton of like just um, knockoffs that came out of pretty small population sizes. But I would say like, there's definitely some unique Canadian genetics that got spread around the world. Like Mighty Might that I already talked about came out of there. Texada Time Warp, which is a, you know, was a super, to me, instrumental outdoor strain. Um, UBC Chemo, which was one of the early, that pretty sure it was like a Canadian bread, you know, not related to Dutch genetics. There's definitely some interesting stuff that came out of there and got spread through that seed bank for sure. But there was also a lot of just generic crap, but there's lots of great stuff came out of that generic crap too. Like I've, I grew out the best Northern lights I've ever um, grown just came out of one of those packs. And I'm sure it was just a F2 from Neville stuff or something. 
Yeah, nice. And out of curiosity, have you been following any of the Northern Lights re-releases from, say, Todd McCormick or Inspector slash Matt Ride? And have they uh, piqued your interest at all or not particularly? Uh, yeah, I followed it. I'm interested, but I also remember... <laughs> I think people, that's one of those ones that people view through rose colored glasses that most Northern Lights, at the time, it was it was totally like the, what do they call it? The state of the art modern indoor indica. And it was. But if you compare it, if I had to take most of the, most of the Northern Lights was pretty generic. Um, so I'm really interested to see what comes out of that because I definitely tried some, a couple of really good Northern Lights. But I also, I grew a lot of different Northern Lights during that early 90s period and most of them were just we'd call them mids these days like they weren't anything special they were just like hash plants um so i'm interested to see what comes out of that but i no, i'm not buying any packs of seeds anytime soon yeah okay i mean hey you've just piqued my interest if i uh, this is a weird situation right but if i put a gun to your head and i said you have to buy a pack of seeds right now like what ones are you going to get like in terms of, like what what would you get if you were going to get one what what interests you right now uh i really i'm actually a fan of like some of the stuff csi humboldt's got going i really like those i'm really a i love that elite kind of like elite or elite clone s1 stuff i'd probably try like um probably maybe some of the kind of that not so dog headband i like the sound of it. some of the headbands i've tried some really good headbands and you gotta remember in canada it's gotten a lot better but we generally don't get most of the elite clones are are bs right it's like it's a cookies clone and you get it and you're like this is anything even remotely cookies it's just it's gotten better now that it's gotten legal that some of the real cuts are going over but generally we didn't get any of that stuff so i've tried a lot of cam i've never tried the actual clones i've tried a lot of girl scout cookies i've never tried the actual girl scout cookies clone i don't think i could made it made of there's a lot of stuff like that so if i was going to buy seeds it'd probably be something like a probably a headband um maybe one of the a5 type things that's going on a5 haze but it would probably be like a headband or something like that or also, the, also one of the Urkels. I've, the one I've never tried that I've always wanted to is a, is some of the Urkels because I'd really like to see how that relates to a lot of the Canada purple cushions because I would lay bets. It's probably related. Yeah, definitely. I have to agree. CSI has been doing some cool stuff with his uh, Femme stuff and I myself have a pack of the, uh, the Headband Cross Lemon Tree. No, sorry. Headband Cross Chem D. It's going to be fire. That's exactly the same. We're on the same page, man. That was specifically the one that I would probably uh, go for if I had to. But I don't buy a lot of seeds. I get, I'll never go through all the seeds I have in a lifetime anyways. I just basically go through clones and stuff that gets gift, gifted to me. Yeah, nice. That's that's cool to hear that you got a nice little stash there. If I could just loop back to a, a point you made a bit earlier, um, just to clarify for myself and anyone listening, um, it, it sounds like you're sort of of the thought that uh, that that heckling with that drugs are at that talk may have been like you know the sort of catalyst that started the whole demise of Mark Emery. Is that sort of what you're getting at? It was a hundred percent. There was no question. If you look at the time frame, it was literally a hundred percent what what uh, happened. There was no doubt at all. And there is some other stuff which I don't want to get into because it's kind of hearsay. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was actually like an undercover agent and dropped into that organization at that time too. It was 
like I don't think most people realize like how much of a threat that group was really perceived by the DEA at the time, I think. Um, but no, there was zero doubt that heckling the drugs are absolutely was the start of Mark Every's demise. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, a bit brazen, isn't it? But nevertheless, interesting stuff to hear for sure. So something which we hear a lot about in the American history is how uh, beneficial that the forums were to the scene, how it promoted a lot of sharing of genetics, things like that. I've never really heard a perspective on how it affected the Canadian scene. Would you say that largely speaking, it was the same as the US in that it was like groundbreaking, you know, you could get all this info, people sharing genetics, or would you say like less so of an effect than what the US saw? Um, the information was definitely groundbreaking. Like that was, I can totally remember like, I was kind of around since the, I was never a giant, a giant forum dude, but I was, I was on there and I was right from the start. Like I literally remember, I can remember the first when overgrow launched. I remember being, there used to be another forum called, I think it was called weed base and it was on a server. I think that was called, I think it was on something called laughing moon, which was, I believe owned by advanced nutrients at the time before they were advanced nutrients. And it was a real low key, forum but that was the cannabis for that was the biggest cannabis forum in the world and i remember going on there one day and there was a post that said you're all going to jail um read this and get out or something like something crazy where you're and it was things are paranoid back there and i was like oh my god like and i remember clicking on it and it was shebang that basically was the guy that started overgrow was who posted it oh don't hold me this one i'm pretty sure it was shebang and it was directing you to this new site <laughs> overgrow.com and saying this was the safe place to go. And I remember going on it then and you could literally go. And that was the time that I was kind of writing for cannabis culture. So you wanted to like keep up on all the latest what was going on. And I remember Overgrow was so small at that time that I could click through in like, you know, 45 minutes and check every post that had gone on like that week or something in all the different subheadings. And then within like, I, from what I'm remembering, it was literally like a couple of months. It just like, exploded so you couldn't even like follow the posts in like one sub forum in an evening um, but there was a ton of information because it was just that was the first everyone was locked in their own little bubble like my whole cannabis world back then was about 10 people maybe 20 like you didn't even tell like you didn't even tell like your best friends that you grew like it was really tight and then the internet was kind of this weird thing where you could tell it, it, it just gave some anonymity and you'd be like, Holy cow, all these other people are doing this stuff. Um, and I would say for me, I was already, cause I was always kind of on and off dead tour during that time period or just or in the nineties. And that was kind of the original. So I already had connections with way more people than the average growers had because I'd meet all these Americans on, you know, on dead tour that were, were into weed, but the average person, like you do like whatever, a couple of your local crew and, and that was it. But no, that was absolutely game changing. I, I said, I basically, that's that and the DEA involvement. That's the reason I stopped writing. Cause I was like, this is irrelevant. Once, once Overgrow blew up, I was like, this writing is, is totally irrelevant. It, it, it basically made magazines like that become like, you know, Reader's Digest or something. Um, but no, I think they were absolutely. And I personally, when I look back on that time period, I think two things affected cannabis laws more than anything one was the internet specifically like overgrow cannabis world that type of stuff just spreading the information and two was people like mark emory seeds just dosing the world with high quality 
uh, cannabis genetics. I honestly think those were the two pivotal things that pushed legalization um, forward. Yeah, fantastic to hear that. And out of curiosity, do you believe that the forums would ever be able to make a comeback? We've seen a lot of people pushing for it and a lot of people criticize the the sort of uh, constant feed of Instagram, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like any of the forums have really got a lot of traction taking off. Do you think we'll ever go back or do you think Instagram's sort of here to stay? I don't think we'll ever go back to the forums. I do definitely miss parts of it where it definitely... Um, I don't like the stuff with Instagram where stuff goes through so quickly where you used to be like, for instance, I know that there's a thread on purple Kush there that I always remember. And it's just like, that was a classic. There was a bunch of them like that, but they were just classic threads where it's like, it was like a thing on BC purple Kush. And there's a bunch of people, you know, posting and they're like, it was sitting there, you know, active for probably a few years and you got some good information on it where now if you said something like that, just like it's a 24 hour discussion. And then it's, it's just gone into the, ig abyss um so i have a i kind of feel like it was a moment in time i don't think it's probably uh coming back there's still i go on there every once in a while and there's still some discussions but it seems like it's kind of some of the older dudes that never uh moved on to cell phones <laughs> yeah 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 uh, it's uh it's an interesting one i'm i'm like yourself it would be cool to see him come back but i'm not entirely sold myself uh, but given we are in the sort of modern legal uh, climate, it'd be good to talk a little bit about that. I know that you've transitioned your work over to the legal market, working in uh, the Canadian cannabis industry, shall we call it. Um, what's that transition been like for you as someone who historically was, you know, doing their own thing um, and now suddenly to be working around people that's all legal out in the open? How's that been for you? Because I know that a lot of the American guys especially some of the big players, even to this day, they still really struggle to sort of act in a way that reflects how legal it is. You know, they're always still like sort of looking over their shoulder because of just the experiences. Would you say you've had a similar experience or is it a bit more casual for you? Similar. So just to be clear, like I kind of haven't been in the commercial scene for a long time. I'm kind of one of those people that I've been around. I think most people know me just because I've been around for a long time. Um, I, and I rolled with a lot of some of my friends were pretty um, hardcore. I've always kind of kept my head down. So it's been a long time since I was like actively involved in the, in the commercial scene. So I, my kind of thing is I've, I've kind of always been around it on different levels. Um, but I've never been like, a, it's been a long time since I've been like, a, you know, a baller. Um, and I've kind of, I've worked in the greenhouse industry so on both sides. So I've kind of seen, watched this, I'm kind of, I think a what's it, arm's length observer. So I wasn't, I didn't really have anything invested. They weren't taking, I wasn't making a living from the cannabis industry. So I, whatever, wasn't hurting me seeing the legal stuff. I, I, I like, I really like seeing people not going to jail. <laughs> like I, I think you can't lose sight of that. I've seen so many people's lives over the, time just completely um, destroyed. Like I have one of my second, my second closest friend committed suicide. And it was um, as far as I'm concerned, as a fallout from being arrested and just having for growing at the time, it was a 600 water. And he was on the front page of the, like basically a personal growth front page of the newspaper for a week or two, the, you know, tax people coming out fight haunting him for years. And they, they destroyed his life over a 600 watt um, garden. And he ended up killing himself. And I saw so many stories like that, that I just, 
think it's important that everyone keeps that in the front. There's a lot of lives ruined. There's still people sitting in jail for stuff like that. Um, and I do find it, it doesn't really, there's a lot of stuff that I don't like about it. So I kind of said I work, um, I don't work for one of the facilities. I kind of work in like supplying and consulting some of the facilities. So I've seen pretty much most of them across Canada. And the thing I think that stands out the most to me is what, what saddens me about it is especially in BC, there's a lot of cool places to live in British Columbia, um, like that don't have any jobs. So, but traditionally, like basically since back in, you know, back in the seventies, but especially since like the late eighties when the indoor stuff took off, that's what paid for people to live in these beautiful spots, like the Kootenays, which is like the interior of BC or up on the sunshine coast, which is like North of Vancouver or Vancouver Island. There was no jobs there, but you could make a living running a 10 lighter or something like that. And that's pretty much done. There's still people doing it, but it's getting really hard. And that I find is that saddens me for sure. Um, I think that was a really great part of like Canadian culture. And you've seen, I've seen firsthand in some of those areas that were kind of black market centric spots. And also in the big, uh, licensed producer opens up there and these guys went from making, you know, a lot of people weren't getting rich in the cannabis. They were making like, you know, 80 or hundred thousand dollars a year or something like that tax free. And then all of a sudden they're making, you know, $50,000 and paying tax. So their wages just kind of got cut in a quarter. And then, you know, it's just, the money's not going into the local economy anymore. The money's going somewhere else. So that, that I really find, um, saddening, but, um, Overall, like I'm pretty positive about it. I think it kind of went through a bit of a dead zone off the start where it just went really corporate. And then there's kind of a second wave coming where I've got like, I've got a bunch of good buddies that run licensed places that are doing okay. And they're like legit dudes. Like they, I think they really love what they're doing and they're not super corporate. Um, but it is what it is. At least nobody's going to jail anymore. Yeah, hugely. That's uh, actually a really relevant point I've been trying to talk to people about because you see a lot of sentiment these days about people feeling really frustrated that, uh, as you said, you know, they can no longer pull 100k from their garden, it's now 50. And a lot of them get really frustrated um, about that and complain about the laws and, oh, we should have never gone legal, blah, blah, blah. But as you said, at the end of the day, keeping people out of jail or uh, sadly, in the case of your friend, you know, committing suicide, I mean, I know that that's not entirely related, but keeping people out of jail should be the number one metric of success. Um, And it is unfortunate that people's livelihoods are affected, but um, yeah, it is good that we can hopefully keep people from being put in prison for just growing a plant really yeah and i think you got to keep it in perspective i mean why were people able to go make you know make a whole bunch of money you know living in some cool spot where there's no jobs it was because that's what you were paying for you know the risk and the risk is gone i mean it wasn't because they were master growers or anything a lot of the time it was because they were you know risking going to jail and i think a lot of them lost um you know lost sight of that and you saw a lot of people that also, you know, that I have a, a couple of friends that, you know, they're kind of genetics geeks and they've always got all the most elite clones. And, and I think they really thought everybody, and they do have some of the nicest weed around. And I think they really thought everybody was buying from them because they had, you know, these super elite cuts and they were a great grower. And then what they found out real quick was 90% of the people were buying from them because they had weed. And there were, you know, a lot of people just don't care about weed as much as you or I do. And they're just like, whatever's cheapest and those guys went down pretty uh, pretty quick it's sad but whatever that's that's 
kind of what you know the world's like yeah exactly and it's you know it's about evolving with the times and i still see a lot of people who are able to you know um diversify their income streams and still stay in the cannabis industry i'd be interested in hearing though you referenced how some of the big uh companies that initially invested in the canadian scene uh sort of went defunct and now there's like this second wave what's it like now do you think that a lot of the big ag has realized look we can't just come in here and make a bajillion dollars like we were hoping to it's actually a sort of a technically challenging operation do you think that we're gonna see like a scaled back corporate version of it or do you think that people will come in buy out these defunct facilities that are now for sale like you know pennies on the dollar and they'll try to do it right how do you foresee the canadian scene going forward uh i think i'll probably be driving around showing my grandkids one day these rusted out old greenhouses and warehouses and telling them the story about how all this you know the crazy cannabis boom that never uh, really materialized um i think just to be clear if you look at what actually happened in canada a lot of it wasn't big ag money or anything like that it was investment money so for instance um like the the you know some of those big ones like um they came on and it was a it was it was an investment thing and like for instance the town that i grew up in um or didn't grow but i've lived in for a long time um there was a big facility opened up there and people started in bat and I knew a bunch of people that literally became like millionaires, you know, invested, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and all of a sudden they're sitting on 1.2 million. Um, they just blew up. And then all their friends are like, Holy cow, like Neil just made a million dollars on the $30 million investment with this LP. So then they all invested their money. So it was really driven by just the average person all trying to cash in on this jackpot. And, you know, I was one of them. I made a bunch of money off the start and I lost it off the, <laughs> the long term. Um, but that's kind of what drove it. It wasn't a lot of like big money. It was a whole bunch of average Joes dumping their money and not knowing what they're investing in. And then I think what happened is these people just had, you know, it was, I don't remember, I never followed it that closely, but it was like, you know, hundreds. I mean, the one place, you know, just one of their facilities was worth $150 million and they had like, you know, three of that size and all of them are shuttered. But there was just, it didn't make any sense. Like I remember um, myself and one of the other guys had kind of been around, not from the cannabis world, but just in that, you know, the horticulture greenhouse world for a long time. And we were doing the math and I was like, I don't know, I'm thinking maybe 40 acres could supply all of Canada. And then it was, I think at one point we were like over a thousand or something. It was just crazy. I think it didn't make any sense, but nobody was really thinking about it. They were just like, well, we've got, you know, a billion dollars to spend that all these investors gave us so we better spend it and they were trying to i think there was a lot of fight for whoever had the biggest production space was going to win and what's really proved out is those people all failed and now the second wave is kind of it's still investors but it's a lot of stuff like uh oil and gas decided to you know put you know put some money into these much smaller facilities or some of the um First Nations, um, like the Native Indian bands, you know, have some cash to put it in. More stuff like that. And they're much more realistic. Like they're smaller. Um, they're not so ridiculous with all the regulations. And it, it, it makes much more sense the second wave. But I think for sure, a lot of that first wave is just going to like rust or I don't, maybe it's going to grow cucumbers or something. I don't even know what they're going to do with some of those facilities. But it was, it was definitely like, it was kind of like the gold boom. That type of thing happened. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, I was thinking dot com boom, but you're right. I guess the gold rush. Exactly, or dot com. 
or .com, same thing. Yeah, yeah, a lot of parallels there. That's really interesting. So, I guess from your sort of professional experience, when you go to large facilities, what are some of the big issues you see that are stopping them? Or maybe not the ones you visit, but just in general, like what are some of the hurdles that a large producer is going to come across that are going to get in the way of them producing top quality product? Because I'm assuming they're all coming in going, yeah, you know, we're going to run these greenhouses. It's all going to be like the AAA plus, the best on the market. And then maybe it doesn't pan out that way. What are some of the issues they have to overcome? Uh, the issues now are a bit different. Like before, when they first started, you'd go in and you'd be like, oh my goodness. Like they literally didn't have a clue what they were doing. Some of them, um, like it was horrible. Um, now I would say most of them are pretty good. The issue that I see the most is it's just age. It's just the, the pro it's the difference between all the black market guys, not to diss my, my black market brothers. Um, but they're all, you know, those legal guys don't know what they're doing. And, and I'm like, I've been in the black market guys places more than most. And I've been in the legal ones. And honestly, a lot of those legal stuff looks better than the black market when it comes down. Um, and the facility, like so they've just got great facilities. It looks great. And I have, I just had literally a place that I was at this week that I have seen, I would consider the top grower in Canada for the legal place, like just absolutely gorgeous product i've seen it come down i've seen it on the dry table i'm like this looks amazing this is unbelievably high quality weed and then i go to the legal store and buy the exact batch that i bought and it's not that great and i think the difference is mostly age where it's just by the time you know they cure it and send it out for quality tests and thc tests and get the results back and then get it up into the you know, the pipeline, the distribution pipeline, and then somebody, you know, the middleman buys it and then the end store buys it. And then it sits in inventory in the store before the end user buys it. I don't know how long that cycle is, but it's definitely way longer than the black market. And when I see it, I'm like, this, this looks like old weed. It looks like no different than good weed that I grew and stuck in a jar for, you know, a year or good weed that my friend was a black market grower did the same thing it just looks like old weed so for sure i think that's the number one thing and maybe there's stuff like you know flushing it with you know nitrogen gas and stuff like that it's just oxidized weed um i think there's a lot of other stuff in there but uh that's for sure in my opinion the top one and then the other one i'm just like for god's sake somebody grow something other than like wedding cake crashers or nothing not to diss it i think those are great strains but it's just like everything's the same like there's not a whole lot of unique stuff out there and i'm yeah it could definitely they could widen the palette but i guess they just do what the the market um sells but growing wise a lot of them are really on point they get i get think they get unfairly uh uh smashed these days i think they're doing a good job yeah nice and out of curiosity what are some of the really popular strains in the facilities at the moment Oh man, I honestly don't even bother keeping track. I just I just call them like glitter cookies. <laughs> it's just all different versions <laughs> of cookies, which I you know I like cookies. I'm not dissing it, but to me, all for almost a hundred percent of it just likes like different versions of cookies. Um, like I said, by cookies I mean also all the I don't keep track of all the gelatos and wedding cake. I just consider all that coming out of that you know cookie family um, type stuff. But all that you know purple dense glitter weed um 
there's a yeah i don't know i do, it definitely just seems to center around there but i honestly i'm not the best person to ask about the legal market because i've literally bought from the legal market about like two times in my entire life i've seen i've seen a lot of it grown and i've seen the occasional thing that one of my friends will buy but my whole most of my like crowd is highly insulated even though i see it all the time all my all the stuff i generally smoke or my friends smoke is all black market or just home grower stuff yeah nice love to hear it love to hear it keeping the uh the homegrown strong now I would love to ask you, because I've been following this myself, so I'm sure others are keen as well. You've done some killer-looking GMO sweet skunk hybrids. I think you created them yourself. Would you be able to give us a bit of info on um, how those turned out? It sounds like a great cross of like new school meets old school. How did it go? Yeah, that was kind of my plan. So it was just, I said, um, I really like some of those old, like, so just for any of your listeners, like sweet skunk is, debatable whether it's a nl5 it's so it, for sure sweet skunk comes back to about 1994 so which is kind of like back in the um neville days and we know for sure it had northern lights it's for sure northern lights hazy um maybe it has grapefruit in it maybe it doesn't depends who you ask but it's official story it came from breeder steve's camp but it, it's regardless of what's in it it's for sure a northern lights hazy um haze dominant uh, hybrid and it's been around I, I personally consider it like one of the most elite clones in Canada. Cause if you look at like the crews that it came from, it came from, you know, breeder Steve's crew. And, and, and uh, you look at the people that still hold that cutting around and they had access to Romulan and all these crazy genetics and sweet tooth and all that. And the only, you don't see any sweet tooth clones still going around. You don't see any Romulan clones still going around for the most part. You see a whole lot of people that held on to uh, sweet skunk. Um, so I kind of just, to me, I just kind of, to me, that's a classic like Canadian heirloom and I like sativas, but I don't, I'm like kind of like some bottom end to go with them. I don't really like the, I, I kind of like some mercy and stuff and I'd like some uh, flavor. Uh, I like kind of some of the modern flavors. So I just threw, I just reversed um, sweet skunk onto just all the clones that I had and I happened to have a GMO in there. And it wasn't actually my plan. I just kind of threw out, the progeny of a bunch of different stuff that I had and the GMO one is the one that really clicked some of the um I was just basically looking for uh to pull a really nice haze dominant you know personal cut um out of it and honestly the I think which is kind of in line with what you hear with a lot of haze stuff it sweet skunk puts out a lot of junk and I think that's kind of the story of haze is I don't know that anyone's ever going to release like a really great haze seed line that you pop like a te- haze dominant seed line that you pop like a 10 pack and you're like this is it this is the keeper it's more like you pop like a hundred and find one that's really nice and a whole bunch that are pretty mediocre and that was kind of the story of uh um, sweet skunk but it definitely there's some nice stuff in there and there's also a bunch of uh really midsy stuff in there um but i got the ones i i kept three out of i think about 150 that i popped that are all uh um super nice but a lot of them went right in the in the hash pile for sure (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Uh, no room for the weak in the stable. That's that's really cool. And out of curiosity, what sort of project would you want to work on next? Given you know you've you've done a lot of the sort of haze type stuff with this sweet skunk project, do you want something different, or are you like more keen to get down the rabbit hole? Uh, I kind of I'm kind of I've been around, like I said I've been around a long time. I kind of between the I've traveled a lot, so I've kind of got to experience a lot of what 
what's going around in the U.S., a lot of what's going around in Canada, and, and I've gone to the Netherlands quite a few times. So I've, I've tried everything, and I kind of know what I like. And so I've kind of taken and said, I'm not a commercial breeder. I have no, no interest in doing I kind of just breed for my own head. Um, and it kind of just comes into a few camps. Like I like purple kush stuff. I like um, stuff like the, you know, haze stuff. Um, and I like some of like the Bubba stuff. And I've kind of got a pretty good stable. I, um, I'm trying to think the only thing I actually plan on doing is that that haze project isn't really done. So both, most of the stuff I probably don't have a lot of plans for that sweet spring project was kind of the first stage. So one of the things I always really liked that stood out in history to me is Neville's haze. So I bought a quite a few packs back in like the, I think it was around 2000 or so back when Neville and Shanty released their original Neville's haze. I have no idea. Maybe it's the same now. I personally doubt it, but it was for sure the original Neville's haze, which was the haze, a male, um, I can't remember the exact mix, but it was uh, the two male hazes, haze A, haze C, and Northern Lights. And that was like jungle weed, but it had some crazy phenos that I would consider in that class the best that I've ever smoked. And I've never seen anything similar to it. Um, so that was, and, and the thing with haze is if you want to find a really good one that you want, it's pretty expensive to be buying all those packs of seeds because I really think you need to buy like 100 to find something really good. And, uh, so I kind of went at it from another point of like, okay, that's the haze C side was the sweet skunk. And I found something that I really liked kind of modernized it a bit with the GMO, like just to bump the turp and the potency up. And now I want to try What I really want out of is kind of one of those incense Neville's haze type of types. Um, so I, right now I just reversed uh, that bandaid haze number seven on the really late flowering, like 17 week flowering uh, haze phenos of that sweet skunk. And I'll probably try to find some other stuff that's got that haze A side in it to bring it in and then just sift through those. But I don't really, I guess they're technically breeding projects to me. They're just sifting projects. I'm not a, I kind of look at cannabis genetics a little bit different than a lot of people. I kind of look at, I used to be down the same line with everyone with all the IBLs and all that. And I kind of look at it as more like when they breed like trees or strawberries or these other like really outcrossing species where it's just like, you kind of whack an elite clone and an elite clone and grow out a whole crap load of seeds and take the one that makes the combination you want. So that's kind of more what I'm, I don't really consider much of a breeding project. It's just like a genetic sifting project. But that's about the only thing I'd probably plan on, on uh, working, like to make some more productive use of my space, just growing some of the clones that I've sifted over the years. Yeah. Nice. Beautiful stuff. Well, I'm incredibly jealous. I think that some of those are, Neville's haze on to the uh, the 16, 17 week sweet skunk phenos would be some beautiful stuff for all of our sativa lovers out there. I would be interested to hear you just you just referenced it yourself. You know, uh, flaring out some of the clones you've sort of acquired over the years. What is the one clone that you used to have that you really wish you could get back? Um, not many of them, to be honest. Uh, I guess the one that stands out. I really liked. Um, there was uh, when Legends used to have uh, that Legends Ultimate Indica, which that was this Ortega clone that actually came from uh, Ed Rosenthal, um, crossed with the Sweet Tooth. And I, I said, I'm not a Sweet Tooth fan at all, but uh, that popped out these crazy, like Jurassic looking Indica phenos. And I used to run like back in the early 2000s or whenever, whenever that was, Reader Steve was really pumping all that stuff out from Switzerland. I ran quite a few packs of that. And most of them I didn't like. They're really sweet. 
uh, tooth dominant, but they popped out these crazy Ortega Finos. And uh, those I really like. They don't stand up like today. The flavor definitely wasn't the same, but they just had super insane uh, mercine in them. They were just so heavy. Um, I don't think, I think it was a fairly flat profile compared to like an OG or cookies or something like that but they were just really heavy indicas and that's what I really prefer. Um, that one I miss, I used to have a really good Ortega clone um, or whatever the Ortega Fino clone. And probably the biggest one uh, is a couple of indicas. Like I used to have an old Northern lights, number one clone that was really good. And I also used to have a Northern lights. We think it was a Northern lights number two, but that's the one that really stands out. And that was, we got it like whatever one of those stories it was like from my friend's uncle who had it since like the 80s and i think it was if you it was one you could actually trace back and i'm like okay like that literally came from like 1988 1987 kind of period and it was like this super um it's actually i got the very first picture i ever posted on instagram is from that clone and uh it was like this super squat indica and it looked a lot like the a lot of the northern lights you see and the turp profile was just off the hook. Like, and I've never tried anything similar to that. There's lots of stuff today that I think is like comparable, but way different. Um, I really like to get that one. And that was one of those ones that to me always stood the test of time that, you know, people didn't keep clones a lot back then for a long, because like, it was just whatever. Someone would grow for a year and there'd be like police pressure on them. So they shut down and not keep their clones. And it was hard to get stuff back. And that one, I remember like losing a bunch of times. And every time I went to look for it, you know, over like a 10 year period, I could always find some, a friend of a friend of a friend who still had that old NL clone that came out, it came out of Squamish in BC, which is this little small place north of Vancouver. And uh, yeah, man, I think that thing was like, I don't remember, like we had it up, I think I lost it maybe 10 years ago and it was from like 1986 or 87 or 88, something in that definitely late eighties. Um, and I've never seen anything similar to that. So I definitely like that. I probably like, and then, some of the incense Neville's Hayes used to have. But that's about it. Most of the stuff, like I kind of, that's kind of what I find interesting with genetics is the stuff just kind of repeats. Like that old famous Northern Lair, that Northern Lights number one clone that, that I really liked from back there. It's pretty darn similar to Bubba and Bubba's got basically everything it had plus like some better flavor to it. So I, th I don't think we lose a ton of the stuff. I kind of think a lot of it just gets a little bit improved and the name gets changed over time. Yeah, certainly. As I get more experience with the NLs, I see a lot of bubber in it for sure. So that's that's cool to hear that um you see that as well. At this point, I think it'd be good to to run through some of our quickfire questions. I've got a little alternative list of questions for you in case you had prepared some answers. I wanted to keep you on your toes. So, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, what do you think is the most underrated Canadian clone or genetic? Honestly, the Canadian, there's <laughs> not a lot. The Canadian gene pool is actually pretty shallow when you dig into it. It's mostly American genetics. Um, underrated one. <sighs> I don't know if I could go with an under, under, uh, no, sorry. I think that my, I, this is my personal opinion. I really like the death Bubba, which is like a modern one. That's pretty commercialized. I personally think that's like, that's one of the clones that I would, if I had to, pick a couple i picked death bubble i think that's a um i think sometimes just because it's super popular doesn't mean it's um not also super good i think that's a good one 
Nice. That's good. I, I would be interested in hearing, how does that differ from Bubba? Because I have heard and seen a lot of it, but never really read too much specifics about it. It's a, it's a Bubba. I said, I have never, I've smoked a lot of like Bubba from seed. I haven't smoked any of the like pre-98 or like the ones you're like, okay, this is legit cut. I haven't smoked that I'm like for sure that's to compare it with. From what I can tell, it's just a, it's a really nice Bubba, but it's got some fuel to it, like a little bit more fuel. I think it was like, a, I think if I had to guess, it probably originally came from uh, Pipsweed from Souvenir Seeds or something like that. And the story was, it was, because he's the only guy I've ever seen that it was, was it Death Star or one of those death things that came out of Ohio. Um, and it was like that, I think it's the Chaco uh, sour diesel cut crossed with that sensi star there's a sensi star that was around that ohio area that's really good um crossed into one of the bubbas and maybe it wasn't from from hips but i know he's made a lot of that stuff around that time period and it actually came into it was one of the dispensaries in kind of that gray market scene before it, we got legal and it was like a, for a while it was like the top clone going around uh, bc and it was locked down hard and i'm not even sure what i have the most common one that's going around whether it's the actual original i don't know um but i i really like it for my personal um thing i like those narcotic narcotic indicas but i just consider a bubble with some uh with a bit more fuel to it yeah nice okay well hey i'm gonna have to keep an eye out that sounds like it's uh pretty nice actually if it's got a bit of sour d and sensi star in there but like I said, that's it's it's actually an Amer it's actually American genetics that just goes around in Canada like most of the stuff. Yeah, okay. Out of curiosity, I like I know people say that, you know, pink kush has had its day in the sun. I, I I haven't had it that much, but I, I think it's the best. Where do you rate it? Do you think it's like we're done with it or what's your thoughts? No, so I'm kind of the opposite to most people. How I do is I don't pay attention to the hype at all usually. And I kind of go like I think OG. I think I told you before like OGs were going around for like at least a decade before I even bothered trying them because I'm just so it's been around so long. It's, it's usually the hype isn't that isn't actually worth the hype, and I've just wasted a ton of time chasing that crap when I was younger. So now I kind of just don't even pay attention. And when something like Death Bub is a great example where that BC usually the really good stuff floats to the top and it stays around for a long time. And when I see stuff staying around, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll try that. And Pink Kush definitely has passed that test. I personally think it's super nice. I like it. I don't consider it as good. To me, I consider it very similar to like an OG and I consider OG better. Um, so I think it's like the same type. I personally think that OG is a higher quality. I think Pink Kush probably yields better and it's a nicer grower's pipe. I think it's super nice. Like I don't think it's probably going anywhere, but I personally, if I had to choose between an OG and a Pink Kush, I'd choose OG. Nice, nice. Maybe a reflection of uh, how little I've tried Pink Kush is why I still like it. Who knows? <laughs> um, one of our normal quickfire questions we ask people, what is your most favorite cannabis experience you've ever had? So be it like, you know, just trying a certain strain, a certain hit of hash, like what really stands out to you as one of the most memorable? Uh most memorable, and again, some of these ones, it's like, I don't know, was it really that great? Or was it just because you were an experienced smoker? But like, I grew up, it was all hash, right? It was, you got, it was all, I grew up when it was just imports around. You got, you couldn't even smoke. You couldn't even sell homegrown. Like you, if you wanted to sell whatever skunk number one, you had to like press it into a brick and make it go all browner and sell it as Mexican or something. So I kind of grew up around imports and 
the part of Canada's farm, it was all hash. And most of it was Afghan hash um, or, you know, that border hash that's produced in like the, you know, Afghan Pakistan area. And every once in a while we get something different. And this actually, when I look back, it seemed like really low quality hash and it was like a blonde Lebanese. And I think in hindsight, that was probably not that I would consider Lebanese like a super, it's a sativa, but it's not like a, whatever. It's not like a haze or something like that. Um, but I totally remember being at like a, whatever, like a bush party, which is um, on the side of this cliff and smoking this Lebanese hash for the first time. And that's one of the few experiences that I would say. So this is way back when I was like 18 or something like that. And back in the eighties. And that's one of the few cannabis experience that I would like compare to like taking acid or mushrooms. Like it was very um, psychedelic. And again, maybe it was just the fried growing up smoking these like super heavy Afghan hashes. And maybe that was just one of my first real sativa experiences, but that one really stands up in my mind. It had a crazy flavor and this really intense cerebral high where I was, I just remember sitting off by myself on the side of this cliff going into like deep, deep introspective thoughts. That, so that probably is the one that stands out the most still just a long time ago. Sounds like a beautiful experience. I'm very jealous. I'm not sure I've ever had proper Lebanese uh, hash I th- maybe years ago in Amsterdam, but like who even knows what that was really? Most of it sucks. <laughs> most of it is not very good. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So uh, we're going to drop you off on an island. What three genetics are you going to take? Is it going to be clones or seeds? You want to do some seed sifting yourself? What are we going to leave you with? No, I'd probably take clones. I've popped a lot of seeds in my time. I think I'm getting older. I'm, in my retirement, I just want to grow clones really well. Um, I would definitely, I said, I'm not a big sativa guy, but I really, the one I actually, I like kind of those heavy, heavy Neville's Hayes types, but other than for like a, what I would consider like a classic sativa, the only one I really smoke regularly is that uh, Roberts Creek Congo. I would definitely take that, even though I, I don't really smoke it a ton. I really like having it around for, uh, if you ever want to smoke in the daytime or anything uh probably the death bubba and something purple i don't know it's like a purple kush or uh i like those almost like a i almost that cookies type but ones that i don't even know what the turp profile is that kind of funky purple cushy lavender like a the lavender turp i find uh, i've tried a lot of stuff that's pretty similar like that lavender turp stuff but uh those are probably the three some one of those purpley lavender types Congo and uh, some death bubba for nighttime. Beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. So, for our final question, I'd love to ask you if you could go back in time anywhere, any place to get one genetic or cut or whatever it may be, where are you going, when, and what are you grabbing? Um, so, I'm not a much, I know everyone talks about like their land raid, they're going to go back to Afghanistan and stuff. And I, I do actually travel a lot, but I don't really have a lot of interest in traveling to other countries. I really like traveling around North America. Um, I would probably, and I also like people doing other, like a lot of the sifting for me, I would probably go on dead tour somewhere, um, both to catch some good dead shows and to catch some, some, that was all dead tour back in the day. Like that was really, to me, I look at it as like a funnel point where all the best genetics or all the best weed going around in the U S ended up on dead tour. So I would probably take like dead tour, maybe back in like the eighties sometime, maybe before, just before the seed bank or something. So like definitely something in the eighties. And then you, I think you could catch the combo of like what was going around there before, you know, Neville just blew up the scene. But, you know, I think that's really one of the 
nuclear events that happened in cannabis is Neville. Like just not necessarily that he was like the be all and end all. He just spread so much of very similar genetics everywhere. I kind of like to maybe go in the whatever mid eighties or early eighties before that was around. But I think there was a lot of domestic cultivation on dead tour and uh, catch some bread Brent uh, Midland shows while I was there because he was an awesome guitar or awesome uh, keyboardist. Hell yeah. Sounds like a good one to pick. I like that a lot. So before I, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to give some comments and shout outs, but make sure you also let people know where they can find you on social media. Uh, on social media, I just not, I'm just on IG, which is direwolf.og. Uh, I don't really do much stuff uh, outside of that these days uh, in the cannabis realm. Um, and shout outs just to all my, uh, all my black market people. Uh, they're still rocking on trying to survive or moving on into the new market. Best of luck to them. Exactly that. So, again... Thank you so much for coming on the show, giving us a rundown on Canadian history, on the legal markets, the futures, and a bit of your own plans. Uh, again, Direwolf, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me, man. It's always good uh, conversations with you. So, what do you think, guys? I love it. Huge shout out to our buddy Direwolf for coming on the show. Hoping you guys enjoyed that one as much as I did. And if you did, be sure to check out our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. For all things the podcast, we give away genetics every month. You get early access to episodes, heaps of exclusive unheard content, such as bonus episodes with Bodie, me and Gene, Bob Hemphill, Sharbud of 707 Seeds, the list goes on. Go check it out, guys. Patreon, rolling out ad-free content. Get ready, guys. Huge shout-out to our usual sponsors. We could not make the show happen without you. Seeds here now. Number one in the business. All the hottest drops. Check them out, guys. They've got all the seeds you're after. Just like if you're in Europe, check out our buddies at Simply Souvenir. Hand-selected range of boutique breeders. Awesome smoking accessories and vapes. They've got everything you need. Check them out, guys. I promise. Amazing customer service. Simply Souvenirs. Thank you very much. Huge shout out to our friends at Pulse Sensors. You know them, you love them. If you don't have Pulse in your garden, you're kidding yourself. There's invisible parameters that you probably don't even know aren't optimized. Getting a Pulse Sensor is an investment in your garden. You're gonna get a better product at the end of your harvest because you'll have things like temperature, humidity, VPD, PAR, all of these things optimized so that your next harvest is the absolute pinnacle to date. Get serious about your growth. Get a pulse sensor. Shout out to the team at Purple Pro. If you're after a modular handheld testing device capable of testing THC, CBD, water content, and water activity, get onto it now, guys. I've been using it for a few months. They were kind enough to send me one to test out, and I think they're great. If you want to get accurate, real-time results that don't cost you per test, grab yourself a Purple Pro, guys. They're fantastic. Thank you to the team, Purple Pro. 
huge shout out to our Patreon. You guys are the lifeblood of the show. If you want to get early access to upcoming interviews, unheard exclusive content featuring the likes of Mean Gene, Bodie, Mr. Bob Hemphill, Sharbot of 707 Seedbank, so much more. Tricomb Jungle, genetic giveaways every month. Look, I can't even fit it all in this little segment. Go check out the Patreon. Go check out the Patreon, guys. www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. I appreciate you guys so much. That's it, guys. Huge shout out for making it to the end, and I'll see you for the next one. We'll see you.